Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. How many of you, when you were in high school, had to read classic literature? Does anybody remember having to do that? I know I did. So I'm going to read off. I want you to think about what were some of the books. You know, what was freshman year, what was junior, senior year. But I want you to think of the books. Anybody have to read Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet? Anybody? I know I did. I was freshman year. Anybody have to read The Great Gatsby? Okay. I think that was maybe sophomore, junior year maybe. Uh, How about Julius Caesar? Anybody have to read that? That was senior year for me. What about Wuthering Heights? Anybody? That was actually, that was senior year too. Um, Hamlet? Anybody a Hamlet? Have to read that? Okay. What do all these stories have in common? They are pretty sad. They end in a tragedy. And uh, one of the things that, uh, and some of them are literally like Shakespeare, they're called Shakespearean tragedies. And you have this certain expectation when you're reading these books that you're like, okay, something terrible is going to happen pretty much to everybody in the story. There's kind of a, this foreboding like, all right, well, I know if I'm reading this for school and not for fun, that means it's going to end badly, you know. <laughs> but whenever you read, y'all, whenever we read books for fun, when we are going on vacation and we need a, a book for the airplane or we're going on, we're, you know, just at the library trying to pick out a book, what do we typically expect from our books? A happy ending. That's right. I, one of my favorite things with a book or a movie is whenever I read it, and I'm like, this was great. And I'll ask someone else, and they're like, oh, I read that. And I was like, oh, what'd you think? And they're like, it was terrible. It was sad at the end. <laughs> and uh, it always makes me laugh that like a movie is defined as, well, it wasn't very good because it was sad. You know? Or the, the book, it wasn't a good book because in the end, they didn't get together. You know, the two people that I was rooting for the whole time. And, and so it's funny that in, in our culture today, when we read books, when we watch movies, uh, how many of you are familiar with the Mission Impossible movie franchise? The whole premise of it is he's got to do something that is incredibly impossible to do. You just hear it and they're describing what he's going to have to do and you're like, there's no way. And of course, as he's doing the mission, what happens? It like gets even more complicated. You know, it's, it's like every time you think, okay, maybe he's going to get it. It gets even more complicated, but you're watching and you're excited the whole time because you know deep down that what? He's going to get it done the whole time. You're just, can you imagine? I think they're making the final Mission Impossible movie coming up soon. We'll see. And uh, can you imagine if at the end of it, he like doesn't get it? (laughs) Everyone's like, all right, here's the final franchise. He's got to make it through these doors that swing with blades and he just gets cut in half. And you're like, oh, well, uh. That wasn't my favorite Mission Impossible movie. I didn't, didn't see that one coming. You know, that, can you imagine? Because we have this expectation. Well, the reason I'm bringing up these older classics is because in these older books, when we read, we have the expectation that it won't turn out good. We have an expectation like Romeo and Juliet sounds great. Somehow it's going to be terrible. Somehow there's going to be bad. And, and spoiler warning, it is. It's a pretty sad ending. I think one of them... Uh, pretends to be dead so that they don't have to marry someone else. And when the other one sees them dead, they kill themselves. And then the other one wakes up and realizes that their lover is dead. And then, then Juliet dies. It, it's, it's a whole mess, okay? If we, transitioning to us, if we look at the world around us, there are many of us in here who have lived certain lives that when we have things going on, we 
have this expectation that good will eventually come out of it. By the way, I believe that is because of our Christian faith, that many of us feel that way. But for most of human history, and for most people around the world, that is not the expectation. For most of human history and throughout most of the world, most people have spent most of their life looking at what's coming, and their thought is, when is this all going to come to an end? When is this all going to just be terrible for me? Because they've seen it. They've gotten their hopes up that they're finally going to be able to move out of their one-bedroom house and into a house that can hold more of their family. And their dad, who's working 24 hours, you know, working all the time to try and make ends meet, breaks their leg. There's, there's a family. I remember on a mission trip, and there was a family that the husband and the wife were on their way somewhere with, for something, and they were in a motorcycle accident, and they both lost, each of them lost the leg on that side of the motorcycle. Those people have a hard time, maybe, spending their life going, oh, it's going to work out, because they constantly are reminded, I don't know if it will. And we're going to see in this chapter of the book of Daniel, we have people reading this book of Daniel who probably are in a very similar mindset or are probably starting to wonder a lot about it. So if you want to turn to Daniel 7, we are in the, we're in the book of Daniel, and uh, this is kind of a crucial, many people argue this is the chapter of Daniel. It's the least fun for us, probably. It's not as fun as, it's not as exciting as the lion's den or the fiery furnace, but this is a crucial, crucial center point of the story. And so I'm going to kind of catch you up before we start reading. But the, what happens is Daniel has this dream, his first of many dreams, and he sees in this dream these chaotic waters. If you were in class, you're picking up what I'm saying. He sees from the chaotic, chaotic waters these beasts that come out, four beasts. And the number four, sometimes it does symbolize this, some symbolize this, sometimes it doesn't. But the number four symbolizes kind of covering the whole earth. So, you know, north, south, east, and west. So when it says the four winds, picture the winds from the north, the winds from the south, east, west. These four beasts come out of the waters. And each beast is pretty scary. The first one looks like a lion with wings. The second one looks like a bear. The third one looks like a leopard. And then finally, we have this fourth one that comes out. So that's where I'm going to start reading in verse 7. I'm going to skip a little bit, but I'm mostly going to be reading between 7 and 14. After that, in my vision, at night, this is Daniel speaking in first person. Another example of the book shifting a little bit. Most of the book, Daniel isn't in first person. Now it is. Um, but he's saying, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Remember, number ten symbolizes complete. Horns symbolize power or kings. So this is an incredibly, totally powerful beast with ten horns. And then skipping to verse 9. In verse 9, as I looked, this is Daniel, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So you've got these different thrones of different kings, but none of them are filled, but one takes his seat. The Ancient of Days sits on his throne. His clothing is as white as snow. His hair on his head is white, was white like wool. His wisdom, totally wise. So if you have white hair, it means you're wise. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, was flowing, coming out from before him. 
Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. So you get this idea of God on his throne before in a, in a courtroom type setting. And the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. It's kind of weird, but in verse 8 it talks about how the, the beast with the horns, one of the horns, speaks. Um, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So ironically, what we get the rest of the chapter is Daniel. Throughout the story, Daniel's interpreted these dreams, and in this story, he doesn't know how to interpret it. But an angel, a messenger, comes and interprets the dream for him. And rather than getting into all of that, I'm going to, rather than reading it, I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. This is the gist of what the interpretation is the rest of, of Daniel 7. This story, as I've mentioned, different stories in Daniel are pairs with each other. Last week we talked about how the story of the friends in the furnace is an exact mirror with Daniel in the lion's den. Little differences, but you're supposed to read them together. This story is paired with chapter 2, with the story of the, the dream that the king has, Nebuchadnezzar has, of this tall statue. And if you remember, the statue has how many different kinds of metal in the statue? Four kinds of metal. And it symbolizes that these different kingdoms will give way to different kingdoms. New kingdoms will come. New kingdoms will go. Four kingdoms. Just like in this, it talks about four beasts. These beasts symbolize the subsequent, this kingdom comes, this empire that is dangerous, it's cruel to people, it is not how God wants it to be, it is not human, it is cruel, and that gives way to the second beast, and that gives way to the next beast, and that gives way finally to this fourth beast. Now, you can read lots of books that are going to tell you what each, like this beast symbolizes the Medo-Persian Empire. This beast symbolizes, I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do is we get the point though, that throughout human history, empires come and go and usually just lead to one more bad empire. One more empire that is hurting people. One more empire that is not living the way God would want them to live. And so that's, that's where you see that. And what happens in Daniel 2? Do you remember in the dream what comes and changes the statue. There's this rock that comes, right? This rock comes and breaks the statue, and then the rock grows, and we're told that the rock will become the kingdom that lasts. And in this chapter, we have the exact same imagery, but instead of a rock that comes, we're told one like the Son of Man will come and will ascend to the clouds to be near the Ancient of Days. And we're told that His Dominion is an everlasting dominion. We are told that all the nations will worship this Son of Man. And so one of the things in this story when we, that I think is incredibly crucial is that if you're picturing that you are someone reading Daniel, you are living with the beasts right now. The beast is, your, is, is holding you hostage. You are someone who was living in Jerusalem, that Babylon came and Invaded, invaded your country. You were taken as hostages to this foreign land. The readers of this story are like the people who, as I was saying earlier, 
They've been taken from their homeland. They're living in this foreign nation. And all they can think is, I want to have hope. I believe that God has made all these promises that he will be with us. But it's becoming harder and harder not to look around and just think, it seems like the beasts win in the end. Does that make sense? These people, and probably, frankly, some of us in this room have probably lived through that, but most of us in this room probably have no clue the level of persecution and feeling that comes from, I, I have this, this empire that is oppressing us and there is no end in sight. But the vision of Daniel gives them hope because in the vision of Daniel, with the rock and now with the Son of Man, they are told, be patient and wait because there is one who is coming like the Son of Man who will be victorious over this beast. Okay, so I have a couple things that, of why this passage is so important. The first one is, I want you to think about, for you, in your life, you may not have a Babylonian empire. You might have some things about our way of life that you feel like feels like an empire is oppressing you. I mean, I wouldn't be all that surprised if many of us felt similarly about things that we see of, man, I'm pretty nervous about what my kids are going to have to deal with someday, if any of you have ever thought that before. Now, by the way, you're not the first parents that have ever thought that before. In the roaring 20s, when alcohol became legal, parents were like, I just don't know what's going to happen to our kids. You know, It's almost like there are just, in history, different ways in which, over and over, Empires of this world that don't know what's good and evil, that don't know putting God first is important, are going to keep popping up like four beasts coming up out of the water. Following me? And so we see, for us, we have got to be people that when we read this story of Daniel 7, we find ourselves in the same heart and mindset of the people living there. Yes, there are times, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is not as easy for me to preach because I've probably been had the most smooth sailing, lucky, I don't believe in luck, but just the most smooth sailing, blessed life. I, I don't, if we had to go toe to toe, I just don't think you'd beat me, okay, on just how much my life has been really easy. So I'm sorry that I'm not a good example, but I know you aren't necessarily where I am. I know some of you sitting in the audience have had plenty of times where you're like, my life has not been easy. I have gone through tragedy. I've experienced pain. I've experienced those 10, 12 years of trying to have a baby going, there's no hope. I've experienced the, those years of my child is far from God and it all feels like it's crumbling around. You've experienced those opportunities. Some of you have been in situations where you want a better life for yourself and every time you think you're about to get a step ahead, it feels like something happens that t sets you two steps back. So even if you may not feel a certain level of oppression, you have felt before a sense of every time I start to get my hopes up that it, there's something better at the end of the tunnel, I'm constantly reminded that there's probably not. This Daniel 7 is just as much for you. This Daniel 7 is just as much for you to say, hold on, hold on, keep persevering, keep denying the lie that the empire wins in the end. Keep denying the thing that the world is going to say that is the just give up. It's not going to be worth it. That's, they're going to win in the end. And hold on to the hope that no matter what that looks like in your lifetime. Obviously, the people in Daniel 7, many of them did die in Babylon. They didn't necessarily get to see the happy story at the end. But we know 
that we have a Son of Man who has come and is coming that we're holding on to, okay? So here's the second most important thing. This is why Daniel 7 is such a big deal. When Jesus refers to himself in the New Testament, by far, more than anything else that he refers to himself as is the Son of Man. I, I don't know the exact number, but I tried to do the research. But if you combine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man about 78 times. And the second place is nowhere near that. And when he's constantly saying, I am the Son of Man, I believe, some people don't necessarily buy this, but I believe that he is saying, I am this Daniel 7 messianic promise that is coming. This one who is from the ancient, is going to the Ancient of Days. One like a human, one who is divine with God, one who is going to be there with Him someday. And what I, I think is so important is, and this is, this, is where, uh, this is where I might lose you, but I don't want to lose you. When we see that Jesus is the Son of Man, the message that we're supposed to be told by Jesus is this is the one who is victorious over the empire. Okay? This is the one that will come, that's kingdom will never end, and will be victorious. There are many people that believe that, even though they're Christians, they believe that because of what happened to Jesus on the cross, and because he was not victorious, that when he comes back again, that's when he'll come again and be victorious. Because he wasn't victorious if he died on the cross. But that's where I firmly disagree. Because in my opinion, for Jesus, as the Son of Man, what he is doing is he is saying, I have come to be victorious. I have come to defeat the, the beast. I have come for my empire to endure, my, my kingdom to last. But the way I'm going to do it is not going to look like the way you predict victorious is going to look. A lot of people didn't believe Jesus when he was saying, I'm the son of man. When he decided, when the, when the cross happened, that's immediately when people started to say, well, that's it. I guess he isn't the Son of Man because he wasn't victorious. Whenever we have that story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, what are they saying? They're walking along and Jesus comes beside them and Jesus is like, what are y'all talking about? Well, there's this guy. We thought he was going to be the one. We thought he was going to be the Messiah, the Son of Man. And we had all these hopes and it just it didn't work out. He's, he, isn't, uh, he wasn't victorious. And Jesus, it says, I think he's kind of mean. Doesn't he say something to them like, you idiots, don't you know the scripture? He says something like that. He says, haven't you read your scriptures? Haven't you seen what was told that was come? Because for Jesus, the Son of Man, he is victorious, but it's a victory that looks different than the world's victory. The victory of Jesus is one that says, I am going to defeat the empire, but it's not going to be with swords. I am going to defeat the empire, but it's not going to be by being more powerful. It's not going to be being at better at military tactics. It's not going to be being better at political maneuvering. I'm going to defeat with something called love. I'm going to de defeat hate with something like peace. I'm going to defeat all this anger and violence with mercy and grace and love and joy. And I am going to conquer the greatest enemy, death itself, by dying and going through death to the cross and coming out the other side with new life. And by doing that, he gives us all this glimpse of we now know that the Son of Man has come, that the empire has been defeated, but even still we sit here and we have to wait for the day when it will be completely defeated. We have to wait for the day when Jesus will come again and we will be able to, as the story says, we will be able to, to read these lines and know them deeply in our heart. We'll be able to know that 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That took place at the cross. We see it now in part, but someday we will see it fully. All nations and peoples of every language will worship him. We see it now in part, but we don't see it fully yet. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So I want to encourage you to think about something that this has to make us ask. If we know that Jesus says, I am the Daniel, I am the son of man from Daniel 7, and he says, I am the one that has victory, but we see him the way he lives his life, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to define victory? Okay? Because if we have a Savior who defines victory as being killed and then coming back to life, then we need to be prepared as Christians to change the way we perceive victory in our lives. If we only see victory as we beat those people who don't believe in Jesus, does that sound like the victory we see the Son of Man examine or live out in his life? If we see victory in Jesus, we sang about it, victory in Jesus, does that look like conquering the way that we expect it to look when it comes to defeating the beast? If you want to be people who are a part of the Son of Man's kingdom, if we want to be people that say, I have know that there is a kingdom that has come and that is coming where the Son of Man reigns and He is victorious and you are going to live into that life, you've got to start thinking about how you're going to define that victory. And it can't look like the same victory as these beasts have. It's got to look like a different kind of victory. It's got to look like one where you say, and, and this is going to happen. It's got to be the one that looks like, you know, I was persecuted for my faith. That doesn't mean I lost. You know, I, I endured a lot for saying I believe in Jesus Christ. And all these people were against me. That doesn't look like victory to many people. But it's got to be what looks like victory to us. And if you've got someone who's not a Christian and you pound them to death with the Bible and you say, you're an idiot, you're wrong, I can't believe you think that way, and you come away, man, that Christian was really victorious over that person. That's not victory. You've missed out. The victory that our Son of Man comes to do is not the victory that the world expects. Our Son of Man's victory is one that looks like laying down your life, that looks like giving of yourself, and God's going to take care of the rest of making sure that we're victorious. So I'm going to end by this. I, uh, you know, Jason said that if you want to know how much of a nerd I am, come to Bible class. Well, you don't even have to go to Bible class. You're going to hear it here. <laughs> but whenever I think about these people listening, and I think about these people in Daniel, and their place of, I just don't ever see when we're going to come out on top. It never looks like anything good is ever going to happen. There's this great line from Lord of the Rings where two characters are talking to each other and one of them says in this long speech it's like probably the most popular speech from the movies it's like in the great stories the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy how could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened but in the end it's only a passing thing this shadow even darkness must pass a new day will come and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think I do understand. I know how. I know now. People in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. And then the other character asks, what are we holding on to? And he says that there's some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. I'm going to change the ending a little bit. My dad always does. I don't think the end of the story is 
that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for? I think the answer to the story is, is that we have a Savior, one that we know in the end is going to be with us, one that we know in the end that enemy is not going to have the last word. When we gather at funerals, when we live this life, and it looks like the enemy has the last word and is victorious, we know that we are able to keep persevering because we have a Messiah that has the last word. We have his kingdom that's the one that is the one that sticks with us. So I encourage you to wait with patience, to hold on. It may seem like the kingdoms of this world will always win. It may seem like the empires of brokenness and pain and evil will keep prevailing, but we know Christ, through his death and resurrection, has already claimed the victory, and we will someday see that victory and kingdom in full. If any of you would like to learn more about what it means to have victory in Jesus, I'd encourage you to talk to me this week, or you're welcome to come and talk to us now. There's going to be elders standing at the doors. If you have anything that you would like to pray about, I'd encourage you to talk with them as we stand and sing this song.